Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. I'm Jesse Thorne. We're supposed to feel kind of bad for watching reality TV, especially those shows where super-duper rich people get into year-long grudge fights over fancy cakes or pink dog food. Reality TV isn't rich in intrigue and allegory like Game of Thrones or Downton Abbey, and it isn't subversive and brilliant like Veep or The Good Place. It's dumb, and the people in it do dumb stuff sometimes. Ricky Lindholm, the comedian and singer-songwriter, watches a lot of reality TV, partly because it's her job. She stars alongside Natasha Leggero on a sort of fake reality show that's set in the Gilded Age, another period. But also, Ricky likes it, pretty much because it's dumb. And she doesn't feel bad about it either. It's almost because the people on it are rich and they have everything and they're just on there to be famous. I don't feel like they're getting exploited. They're not on American Idol. They're not being humiliated. There's no contests. They're like, they have, they're millionaires and they have all this agency and they can say whatever they want and they still choose to do this. And so I'm like, well, then it's your fault that you're on a yacht grabbing this woman's hair. <laughs> it's bullseye. <laughs> Coming up, Ricky and Natasha talk about creating and starring on Another Period, a show about some of the most wealthy and unlikable people in late 19th century and early 20th century New England. Two roles that they love playing, by the way. We're both 100% ignorant. It, we, we always have a discussion. We always try to figure out who's the worst person mm-hmm. on the show. I think it might be my husband. Yeah. Because <laughs> um, at least I like my dog. Then... Get ready for one of the founding fathers of L.A. hip-hop, the Egyptian lover, DJ, producer, dancer, plus, you know, the man's got bars. My name is Greg, but they call me brother. I'm better known as the Egyptian lover. I'm six feet one and so fine with a hairy chest that'll blow your mind. Finally, I'll tell you about a TV show that will make you fall in love with a couple of weird British guys who walk around with metal detectors. That's all coming up on Bullseye. Let's go. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Another Period is a show on Comedy Central with a really simple premise. It's a reality show set in the Gilded Age, like Keeping Up with the Kardashians meets Downton Abbey. Another Period kicks off its third season this week. It was created by and stars my guests Natasha Leggero and Ricky Lindholm. They play Lillian and Beatrice Bellacourt, two rich sisters living in New England in the late 1800s. They do what a lot of aristocrats did back then, which is basically nothing. They're self-involved, they're blissfully unaware of politics, and they're desperate to climb the social ladder. Basically, they want to be famous. Like reality TV, the melodrama is taken to absurd levels. The characters are mostly unlikable, bordering on evil. They go off into a studio to recap the last fight they had, only there is also, like, absinthe and servants, and they talk about tulips and the temperance movement. Let's listen to a little bit of it. In this scene from the show's pilot, the Bellacourt sisters just got a telegram, a message about two of their best friends. It's a telegram for you, Lady Beatrice. Oh! Oh! What does it say? I don't know how to read. Right. 
Oh, darling, your friends, the Claudette sisters, they've passed. Claudette sisters passing means there's two spots open in the Newport 400, the 400 most important white people in all of America, and I know who's going to fill them. Who? Us. <gasps> well, I'd like to propose a toast to the death of our social rivals. To the Claudette sisters. And to tuberculosis for taking their lives at such a young age. Ricky Lindholm, Natasha Legero, welcome to Bullseye. It's great to have you on the show. Great Hi. to be here. That was David Wayne playing our husband, you know, one of our husbands. I like, uh, you know, I'll watch other interviews uh, in order to prepare for an interview just to get a sense of how people respond to things and that kind of thing. And I watched this morning a clip of the two of you on the Today Show with oh, Kathy yeah. Lee. And a drunk Celine Dion. <laughs> yes. I made fun of her on social media for a month after that. That was astonishing. Astonishing. Yeah. Wait, so that clip is available? Absolutely. <laughs> oh, we have to retweet that. I watched and enjoyed it very much. She did not want anyone to have the floor except for her. <laughs> and she was interviewing us. And she, she was she was the <laughs> interviewer. She wasn't the guest. Yeah. And it was her like fourth episode of the day. And we were supposed to drink wine, and then they were like, "No wine. No one's having any wine." Like I think she was some. drunk or something. But she it was alluded, like eleven a.m. She alluded in the interview to wanting more wine. <laughs> like she said, "As long as we keep drinking wine, we'll keep having fun," or something like that. Right. In her defense, they were like back to back filming episodes of this for her, like all in one day. So she had been drinking for other episodes. You know, earlier that morning. But, but that is the only thing to say in her defense. Yes, <laughs> she was pretty fun. I'm, I came out of this. I came out oh, of this pro Celine okay. Dion. Yeah, she was. Well, you a, have to understand. Oh, we flew to New York for that interview. <laughs> Woke and up then... at like four in the morning, got our hair and makeup done. We had outfits. We were ready, and then we didn't get to say anything. <laughs> I feel like we. Yeah, we almost said nothing. Mm -hmm. And then she was, what was her thing? She just kept like being like. She was mad because her picture wasn't on the card or something, right? <laughs> wasn't she like, where's my photo or whatever? Yeah, I don't know. I, that was the terrible French Canadian accent. She did some serious mugging. There's no doubt about it. The, mm -hmm. the, the takes that were going on when it, was in the, when it was in the master shot of all four of you. On the far left of with Celine, the faces she was making. She was doing while some Buster Keaton else. stuff yeah. up in there. Yeah, some she was. Full... Yeah. She was doing some full Lillian Gish. Just... <laughs> <laughs> Is that available on YouTube? I, I encourage you to seek it out. It may only be on TodayShow.com or whatever. But uh... well, that is my homepage. So <laughs> excellent. I watched and enjoyed it. I mean, it occurred to me as I was watching this that here you are uh, on this show, and you know your show, another period is about a kind of imagined manufactured celebrity in part, right? It's in part a parody of, um, you know, the uh, reality shows that are about manufactured celebrity. And uh, you're sitting there with Kathy Lee Gifford and Celine Dion, who both are brilliantly talented. I mean, I don't know how you feel about, I, I understand I mean, that you Celine have... can sing. Like, you can't really right. pretend otherwise. You <laughs> yeah, know? exactly. And Kathy Lee Gifford is a hoot. Like, she's really good at doing that. Mm -hmm. Um, but they are also like, I can't, I, it would be hard for me to think of two more kind of unreal, actual human beings in the world if I were to meet them, like two more, two people who seem less like actual people and more like 
a, a projection on the side of a building. Right, like, like you're not thing. going through the McDonald's drive-thru with Celine. Yeah, exactly. Like, McMuffin, yeah. Like, I can't imagine what it's like to sit next to something. Like, Celine Dion is... I highly recommend her Instagram. Oh, it is it is just her getting out of her private plane and her private car addressing her public with her <laughs> arms outspread. I mean, it's hilarious. Like a, like a Vita or something? Exactly. And I'd say most of the pictures. <laughs> <laughs> it's so funny. Do the two of you watch the kind of shows that this show takes its format from? Uh, I do. Ricky. Well, Ricky loves the Kardashians. And Real Housewives. And I kind of love Downton and, you know, historical dramas. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I like Downton, too. But, I yeah, I watch most of the Housewives. And I watch uh, – I just started watching Vanderpump Rules. I decided I needed another piece of garbage TV in my life. Well, how did this – I'm all caught up. How did this come into your life, Ricky? How did you become so committed to it? To the Real Housewives? Yeah. Um, I was – it was weird. I was sort of – going through like a stressful work time where I was working so much that I couldn't really take it. And then it just was on when I came home. And I'm like, oh, that turned my brain off. I didn't think about anything. And then I fell right asleep. And I'm like, oh, I kind of like this. I was watching Real Housewives of Orange County. So then I went back. And then every night when I was doing this job, I would come home and watch these things. I'm like, this is funny. This is hilarious. There, and we use a lot of it in our show. There is a quality to those shows that um, you guys can't... Our mind is mind-numbing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, you guys can't do it in the same way because mm-hmm. your show's show packed full of jokes. It's constantly moving forward. But there's an odd quality in that show where, especially because of the commercial breaks, they kind of spend half the show telling you what's just happened and what's about to happen yes. without actually doing anything. <laughs> we should do a whole episode like that <laughs> where nothing ever happens. <laughs> I know. It's like you just feel like you're wasting your time or your mm-hmm. life or something. It is a very odd feeling. I feel like women are much more attracted to those shows than men because I've had them on before. And if my husband comes home, he's like, you need to turn that off <laughs> right now. Like he, they, there's like a deep offense taken by just I, how do women do it like around? I think men? I have like ADD or something and it turns my brain off in a way that I can't explain. And I'm just I liked happy watching it. it, too. I yeah. liked, like, the character study. Mm-hmm. But the reason I don't mind those two shows is because the people – it's almost because the people on it are – rich and they have everything and they're just on there to be famous. I don't feel like they're getting exploited. They're not an American Idol. They're not being humiliated. There's no contests. They're like they have they're millionaires and they have all this agency and they can say whatever they want and they still choose to do this. And so I'm like, well, then it's your fault that you're on a yacht grabbing this woman's hair. You're you're 50, <laughs> you know. You're 50 and you, you own 25 restaurants. Like what are you doing? You know. Are you someone who watches these shows and admires the qualities of the people on these shows because I mean, often the first defense you'll hear if if I'm not going to say who might cast aspersions upon these programs, but it might be someone who uses the phrase cast aspersions casually. <laughs> um, but like, uh, you know, your first defense, the first defense line of defense you'll hear is, you know, these people aren't dumb. They're successful entrepreneurs, blah, 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 which I, I think is is true. Mm-hmm. Right. But do, are you the kind of person who is laughing at them or living through them? I would say it started laughing at them. And now I'm 25% living through them. (laughs) Really? Well, because we get so much good material from it that it's become like, for our show, it's, I feel like maybe I'm just justifying it to myself, but it does feel like it's also a little bit for work. I mean, you're an actual show business. Like you're an an actual professional entertainer with uh, an act and talent and stuff. But our characters are like, they're not that different than these. We definitely want to become famous. But I will say, I, I would argue that our show also takes from, you know, 
historical, you know, historical stories and, you know, that's true. There series was, as well. There was a story that storyline that I really enjoyed on the last season that I, I want to run a clip from. So the show is set basically during the Gilded Age, around the turn of the 20th century. In America. In the United States. And um, so there are relatively few recognizable Gilded Age celebrities, but you have <laughs> really worked them into We've all the storylines. And that's part of what the show is about, is it's so hard to become famous back then. You have to be the president. You have to be, you know, There's no technology. Yeah. There's... You have so, an actual talent or something. One person who is famous and still alive during the Golden Age. Gilded Age. Excuse me. During the Gilded <laughs> Age is Harriet Tubman. Um, and so this is, uh, this is a scene in which Harriet Tubman is, is essentially teaching your characters about branding, <laughs> like personal branding. Yeah. How do you think I became the Moses of my people? You think they just started calling me that on their own? Well, we've never really thought about other people ever, so I don't know. Well, honey child, I thought of that. Mm-hmm. You ever hear Justin Paramore? No. Exactly. Justin freed more slaves than anybody in history, but he didn't know a thing about branding. He wanted to call it the slave connection. Oh. But slavery had such a negative connotation. Why? So I said to him, let's make it about trains. White folks love themselves some trains. We really do. <laughs> 20 years later, I'm a legend. Someday, they'll even put me on money. We love money. And Jelson threw himself in front of a train. <gasps> Very ironic. It is funny. <laughs> <laughs> that sounded like a play. It really did. What uh, What is the mix for your characters on the show, the the Bellacourt sisters, of evil, uh, stupid, and ignorant? Like, to what extent is their bad behavior driven by what parts of those things? It depends on the person. I would say what we – Natasha's – I'm more evil. Mm-hmm. You're more ignorant. What was the other thing you said? We're both ignorant. Stupid. We're both 100% ignorant. We we always have a discussion. We always try to figure out who's the worst person Mm -hmm. on the show. I think it might be my husband. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Because at least I like my dog. Mm -hmm. I don't know. It's it's hard to see. But, I mean, my favorite TV shows, you know, shows like Arrested Development. It's like everyone's so flawed. It's like how many flaws. It's more fun to play characters with flaws. So I think Mm -hmm. we're always trying to, like, figure out how to... Have more flaws. <laughs> My character is like 75% stupid, 25% evil, I would say, and 100% ignorant. But she, my character also kills people, and that's and she's not even the worst person in the house. She's not the worst sister. <laughs> How do you um, find historical material to inspire you? Uh, we've been to Newport a couple times. We actually have gone there. And Newport, Rhode Island. Newport, Rhode Island. Mm-hmm. So basically the show yeah. takes place there. And the Gilded Age, you know, was kind of centered around this area. And basically just very quickly from like, you know, 1900 to like 1910, 90% of all the wealth in America was all in this place. And if you go there, you can still see these like amazing places that now are owned by the Historical Society. And people were living like... 
insane. I mean, not even like rappers. Like mm-hmm. they were living beyond. Like, and each yard is like rolling green hills, and then the sea. And you know, they'd have twenty five indoor servants and thirty five outdoor servants. And you know, once income tax was introduced at the you know around nineteen twelve or whatever, people couldn't afford to live like that. I mean, people were making billions of dollars. Mm-hmm. A hundred years ago, that they didn't pay taxes on, right? Like Andrew Carnegie, yes, of the uh, the Car- Carnegie Foundation of New York, of Carnegie Hall. Yeah, he um, <laughs> on NPR. It's everyone says everyone Carnegie. Everyone knows know. that you're supposed to say Carnegie now. Uh, but Andrew Carnegie was like a literal billionaire when he died in the teens or something. Yeah, yeah he had four billion dollars when he died in that in that money. So I don't even know how much that's worth. It's endless, endless money. So these people were just like. I mean, think about what that would do to you. So, you know, there was a story that we read about like this woman. We didn't even use this one, but this woman like changed mansions because the she was too close to the sea and it was messing up her hairstyle. You know, the humidity. So she's like, I'm going to move one, you know, two mansions more inland. I mean, these people were just like well, the thoughts that would go through their heads are. And we have an episode based on a real story of a woman who spent $100,000 on a dinner party for her dog. And that's, that's a real episode. <laughs> yeah, we actually did that. There was one of the houses that we went to visit, and the servants, they went on strike. And the guy was like, okay, you're all fired. And then just, they wanted, what did they want, an hour of free time a week? It was like nothing much. And I think, you know, it was at a time in America where there were just boatloads of immigrants coming from Ireland and Australia. And there was just always new people coming looking for work. And they would just live in these homes. And they'd work like 16 hours a day. They weren't allowed to drink. They weren't allowed to marry. They weren't really allowed any social life. And it was very, it was, uh, I mean, they weren't beaten, but, you know, they did not have a lot of privileges. You two co-created this show, so why did you not give yourself a fun uh, servant role instead gave yourself a dumb princess role? (laughs) That's a great question, which can be very easily answered by the fact that we wanted to wear crowns (laughs) and amazing dresses. I mean, the servants wear the same outfit every time. But you're right. I mean, I guess that could have been... That might have been smart. <laughs> I relate. To, I I relate to that so deeply. Like when I watched Downton Abbey, by the end, my interest in it was seventy five percent trouser related. Like a sport <laughs> coat was what I was there. I was in like minute forty, and if I got my, if they they're like, oh, we're gonna go hunting, I'd be like, oh, it was all worth it. <laughs> well, the servants are such you know menches, and it's sometimes. More fun to play, like, awful people. <laughs> well, Michael Ian Black's character, who's named... God, he's so good. Peepers. Peepers. <laughs> uh, he is um, he is a bit of a parody of uh, Mr. What's-His-Face from Downton Abbey. What's, mm-hmm. a, what was, what's that guy called? Um, Mr. Carson. That's it. Mr. Okay. Carson. I think Michael Ian Black's way better. Than Mr. Carson? <laughs> He's Do you think Downton comedian. Abbey would be improved by the addition, would have been improved by the oh, addition probably. of Michael Ian Black? Yes, oh, yeah. of course. Most I things mean, are better with MIB, right? It really, yeah. I mean, he's so funny. The thing that I love about that. He's such a great actor. The thing that, he is wonderful. The thing that I love about that character is the depth of his commitment to his own misery, which mm-hmm. is the subtext of Mr. Carson on Downton Abbey or yeah. anyone that the, here is someone who is so deeply, profoundly invested in this system 
that also is so brutally <laughs> destroying his life. Yeah, it's very interesting. Yes, and I, I think that you you would find that then, you know, especially we also watched a lot of Upstairs Downstairs, and that's a British show from the seventies, and the head butler there. I mean, he. He truly believed in the hierarchy of, of, of you know, they're, they're royalists. They believe in this hierarchy and that they have a place and that the rich people have a place. And it's so foreign to how we think now. But I, I do think that was that was something that was mm-hmm. very real. And this season, Mr. Peepers has some challenges to that where he gets some opportunities to not be so subservient and he goes a little crazy. <laughs> I remember watching the second season or so of Downton Abbey and being a few episodes in and thinking like, oh, maybe from the perspective of the show, all this stuff is good? It seems a little bit like that. There doesn't seem to be a lot of commentary on the state of servitude. It just seems to be like like, we get pretty things and they don't or something. It's so ripe for parody, you know? Like, it's not normal to just be fighting with your husband at the end of the night and then put your arms out and two servants, like, put your robe on you, (laughs) you know? But that's what—that's just normal for them. Um, And also the idea of living with so many people around you and interrupting all the time. It just seems like it would be so annoying. Do you ever have an introspective thought? Like, I don't think so. You don't bathe alone. Like, I don't I don't know. It's very it's very odd. What were the things that you learned about life in this time that were the most surprising to you and all this reading and traveling that you've done? I, for me, it was a, a woman thing. I didn't. I knew women had it bad, but I didn't know that you couldn't own property. I, I didn't know that divorcees had the most rights. Like, even though they were sort of socially shunned, you, you had to be a widow or a divorcee to own property or to have a bank account. And if you married someone, your rights and ownership were gone. So it was sort of an advantage, even though you were a social pariah. You had no agency unless you were alone. I thought that was kind of interesting. You actually made that into a storyline here in the third season. Mm-hmm. That one of the characters is uh, a an accidentally rich divorcee who is sort of realizing the the social position that that puts her mm-hmm. in. And it's the first time they have any power. Yeah. We'll have even more of my interview with Natasha Legero and Ricky Lindholm when we come back from a break. Plus, freak beat legend, the Egyptian lover. Don't go anywhere. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. Support for Bullseye and the following message come from ZipRecruiter. A new year has begun, and if you're setting new goals for your business, you need the right people on your team. ZipRecruiter has transformed how you find them. ZipRecruiter posts your job to over 100 job sites with just one click. Then they actively look for the most qualified candidates and invite them to apply. That's why 80% of employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site in just one day. Try ZipRecruiter for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash bullseye. Ever get to Friday, look back on the week, and say to yourself, what just happened? I'm Sam Sanders. Check out my podcast, It's Been a Minute, where every Friday we catch up on the news and the culture of the week and try to make sense of it all. Listen on the NPR One app or wherever you get your podcast. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm here with Ricky Lindholm and Natasha Legero. The two of them created and star in the Comedy Central show Another Period. It just started its third season. Let's hear another clip from Another Period. Um, it, it's about the Bella Courts, the first family of Newport, Rhode Island, and um, 
constantly, real life historical figures are getting entangled into their storylines. So, it, it, for a while there, uh, Helen Keller was very involved in their lives, along with her teacher Ann Sullivan, who was who was played by Kate Flannery, uh, who folks might know from The Office. Um, so, in this scene, Ann Sullivan is thanking the Bellacourt's eldest sister Hortense on Helen Keller's behalf for her monetary contributions to the women's suffrage movement. Oh, <laughs> well, to me, suffrage... Yeah. Haven't women suffered enough? I mean, we're already inferior to man in every way. <laughs> Lillian, suffrage is the right to vote. Vote? Would we have to do it every day? If women can vote, who's next? Horses? Tulips? Beatrice? <laughs> <laughs> I like that I think tulips are going to have to vote. <laughs> and that that's better than me voting. <laughs> it seems like one of the fun things about having this show, it would just be when you're writing a joke, coming up with a specific that feels appropriate to 1905. It's so fun. Yeah. Yeah. We love being anti-suffragists, too. It's just so ridiculous. Yeah, because I'm sure that there were women like that mm-hmm. who 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 didn't who wanted to keep things as they were. Things are fine right now. It's fine. It is particularly distressing to watch since the time period while everyone is wearing ball gowns and everything. And it, changing like eight times a day. That's another thing. Like, yeah. It's like a morning outfit, a sailing outfit, a beach outfit, then a cocktail outfit. Then you get dressed for dinner. I mean, it's insane. That's just my life. <laughs> <laughs> just trying to do my thing here. Is this your morning outfit? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But that uh, it is, while it is, you know, weirdly Victorian, it has these things like changing for dinner. Uh, it also is a recognizably modern world wherein for these characters it, the idea of a woman voting is absurd. Mm-hmm. But but yet it was still brewing at that time and yeah our our characters just don't get it. Like we go to a suffragette rally to protest and we're screaming that we're like women shouldn't have voices. Raise your hand if you want to vote. Like we have no idea that we are actually feminists underneath. Cuz we cuz our characters do think that we should have everything and we think we should have everything a man should have, but we also don't think we're feminists. <laughs> Why did the two of you end up becoming a stand-up comedian and a, not quite stand-up comedian, but a comedy performer? Because um, you, Ricky, do uh, musical comedy with Garfunkel and Oates. Mm-hmm. Um, instead of just going to auditions like most people who go to acting school and aspire to be actors do. I mean, we do all that as well, but mm-hmm. I think, you know, doing that was kind of like a wake-up call. <laughs> yeah, it was disheartening. I I feel like my friend kind of says it best now. He goes, you were doing just well enough to not know how badly you were doing. <laughs> like, I, I was in that realm where I was booking a pilot every year, and I had help, but it would never go. And I, I had health insurance, or I would have a little thing here that, like, enough where I was, I was doing commercial, making my living, and I kind of thought it was going well, but I, I never had that luck factor. I never was in anything that went or took off. And when the writer's strike happened, I was like, I need to figure out what my other talents are because I'm dead in the water. I knew like as soon as the strike was over, the auditions that I'd been having would go to more famous people. Like I, I just I just saw it. I knew it. And so I was like, what else do I like to do? And I'd always done music. I did musical comedy in college. I'd always been writing funny songs and playing them at parties. And in Kate Micucci, my partner, same thing. She had just been playing funny songs on her own. And we were like, oh, let's do this together. This seems fun. How is it different when you stepped on stage as yourself to do something that you wrote? Um, 
me alone or me with Kate. Oh, that, you, that, that, that the two of you rode together. It was awesome. It was just it just felt like, you know, I'd been out here auditioning for, you know, eight years or whatever. You know, you always need permission to perform like someone has to select you and grant you something and you perform this material and to be able to just get up every night at any venue and just, you know, and you can work as much as you want, write as much as you want and say whatever you want. And then to have it work was really crazy. We didn't know if it was going to go well. And then when it did, we were just, that's like all we wanted to do. Natasha, your persona on stage is so fully formed. Um, what was it like for you when you started performing as yourself? Um, I think I, I got, I mean, same with Ricky. I think I just got lucky. Like, I think some people just have really positive experiences on their first. You know, and also you'll, you'll meet amazing com- comedians who have the opposite. You know, but usually it's like it was either like an awful time or like, you know, they like, I mean, I just had like this amazing show the first time I ever went on stage, you know, just doing material I had written in my in my stupid little studio, like locked the doors and was like, okay, I'm going to do this on Monday and, you know, worked on it all weekend. And I just didn't think they were going to laugh. So then when people were laughing, you know, it was, it was like, it felt like a drug. And I feel like I've been chasing that ever since, (laughs) you know, I just remember it felt like waves like falling over me. But also then I, I was remembering that my hairdresser had given me some kind of pill, so I've been trying to figure out <laughs> like what was that? what yeah. was that pill? It was only a half of a pill. Beta blocker, maybe. I think it might have been like Ambien. Oh. I don't know, but it was it was definitely my first time performing. <laughs> that is such a crazy thing to take before you go on stage. I don't do. I was very nervous. I had never totally. done anything like that, and I also don't take pills, so I just remember it being like a very out-of-body experience that I was never going to just not do again. So that, in a way, I was very lucky because if it – if and then my second show was like, you know, I totally bombed and people, I think, threw, were throwing stuff at me and, like, I was making fun of how the room smelled and it was silence and, you know, it was just, like, awful. Um, but you were like, but that last time. <laughs> yeah, so I think that, you know, and I just – and then I remember coming home from that second show being like, okay, this is going to, like – it's going to be hard. It sounds like what you're really chasing is that hairdresser more than anything else. <laughs> the drugs. I should just get I should just get a prescription for Ambient. You know, I also was coming from New York and I thought, you know, I had my own ideas about how L.A. was. And, you know, I wanted to, like, make fun of things. And I had a degree in theater criticism. So, like, my critical mind was very developed. And, you know, I just wanted to, like, make observations of, like, how I was feeling. And, you know, just it was like a perfect situation for me. Well, guys, thank you so much for taking the time to be on Bullseye. It was really great to get to talk to you. Thanks for having us. It was really fun. Natasha Legero and Ricky Lindholm are the co-creators and stars of Another Period, which returns to Comedy Central this month. I want the money. I want the fame. I want the whole world to know my name. This is mine. I got to get it. I got to get it. I got to get it. Another Period. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My next guest is a man named Greg Broussard, but better known as the Egyptian lover. He's a DJ, a producer, sometimes a rapper. He got his start with Uncle Jam's Army, almost certainly the most important crew in early West Coast hip-hop. As a solo artist, he's made nine albums, mixing a little craft work, some prints, a bit of G-funk every now and then. But if there's one thing that defines the Egyptian lover, it's his mastery of probably the most iconic instrument in hip-hop, a drum machine called the Roland TR-808. 
If you don't know it by name, you've heard it in literally hundreds of songs. Egyptian Lover still performs. He's recording new music, he's touring the country, and wherever he goes, he brings his 808. Let's listen to a classic Egyptian Lover track. This one's called Killing It. Egyptian lover, welcome to Bullseye. It's great to have you on the show. Oh, man, it's great to be here. So your instrument of choice, above all else, is a drum machine called the 808. Yes. Can you tell me what that drum machine is first for folks who don't know? Well, the creator uh, ran Roland. He he owned Roland. He made a drum machine so you can practice, you know, your bass guitar, your guitar, your piano, whatever it was was that they, they... practice back in the day he made a drum machine to sound like a real drum so you can practice to it but it didn't sound like a real drum so he thought it was a flop and when he put it out it didn't sell very well when it first came out because it was kind of expensive but when it it reduced in price that's when all the djs and you know everybody started buying them and and it's when it became popular and because it didn't sound like a real drum was what really made it popular i mean you had a, a kick that had a decay on it to make the, the bass go boom instead of just a regular boom. And the snare sounded like a little toy trash can or something. It had a cowbell that was really nice. It had a hand clap on it, which was really nice with built-in reverb <laughs> for some of them. And a hi-hat that was real small and tiny and had toms on it. I mean, it was a rim shot. It was it's just incredible when you put all them together. And when I first heard it, I didn't know it was a drum machine. I thought it was just a drum, maybe different mics, toy mics or something. And I met this one guy named Africa Islam. And I was like, wow, the name Africa Islam. It's like Africa Bambada. You know, how'd you get that name? He said, well, my friend, well, who I call my dad is Africa Bambada. I said, oh, really? Um, what kind of drum did they use to make Planet Rock? And he said, it wasn't a drum. It was a drum machine. I'm like, oh, really? And right then and there, I'm thinking to myself, I need to buy a drum machine. <laughs> He said, yeah, it's called the Roland TR-808, and they have them down at the, the music the music store. So the next day I went to the music store, and the clerk helped me program Planet Rock in the 808. Then I changed the beat and made it sound like a different song, and people start gathering around me in in the music store, like, wow, that's pretty cool. That's, and to me, it sounded like another record already. So I bought it right then and there and, and went home and just programmed it full of beats, brought it to my next party, played it, and everybody went crazy. So you were already DJing by the time you got your hands oh, yeah, on the I drum was machine. Pretty much the 
the number one DJ in L.A. <laughs> when I got the drum machine. So the party idea was at the L.A. Sports Arena with 10,000 people. And I played Planet Rockin' on the Breakdown. I played the 808. And I was kind of scared, like, will they keep dancing to a drum machine? Or, you know, I'm kind of nervous. 10,000 people and a lot of gangsters in there as well. And so when I started at the 808, nobody stopped dancing. They kept dancing. And then I changed the beat up a little bit, and they kept dancing. And a few people were saying, what, what record is that? What record is that? I'm like, yeah, I got them because they don't know it's a drum machine. Even the owner of Uncle Jam ran up on the stage and said, man, that's a nice record. Where did you get that record from? I said, it's a drum machine. He was like, what? And I pointed to it, and he looked at me like, I said, we need to make a record. And that's when we went in the studio and made records. Let's hear a little bit of the song that uh, changed your life in a way, uh, Planet Rock by African Bambata and yes. Soul Sonic Force. So do you remember when you first heard that record? Yes, I was um, actually selling mixtapes at this record store in Long Beach. Me and my friend Snake Puppy was selling mixtapes with our raps on there. And um, it just came in that day, and we put it on to see what it sounded like. And I was like, whoa, that sounded like Kraftwerk. And I'm like, but the beat is more funky, you know. It got, it got more bass to it. And so I fell in love with it. Like That's like the black Kraftwerk sound. And I instantly fell in love with the sound. I mean... I loved a lot of music back then, but I fell in love with Planet Rock, and I knew that that's the kind of music I wanted to make. What kind of mixtapes were you making? Were you just looping breaks? or Rap, I was pause button mixtapes, so let's say I had Cameo Shake Your Pants, and um, I had one turntable at home and one tape deck. And so I would grab the breakdown of, of Shake Your Pants with, like, shake your pants. Shake, 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 one like my name is Greg, but they call me brother. I'm better known as the Egyptian lover. I'm six feet one and so fine with a hairy chest that'll blow your mind. <laughs> my name is Greg, but I like to say I may be sweet, but I sure ain't gay. It's because I got style and I got class and I like a girl with a pretty ass. <laughs> and everybody at my school bought one of my mixtapes. I mean, I was walking around <laughs> school with a thousand dollars in my pocket back then in 1979, 1980. It was it was amazing. Were you recording them on a like a cassette recorder, like a two-track or something? Yeah, I didn't have a microphone, so I put the headphones and the mic jack, and it worked. And I was singing the, the raps with the microphone, and it was pretty cool. And I had Bounce Rock Skate Row instrumental playing while I was doing it, and I made a pause button mix of that so it could be longer, and I made like a 15-minute long rap. Were you, also, uh, were you also dancing back then? Oh, yeah, I was dancing, pop-locking with them, doing the gigolo. I, I was in a gigolo contest. I got second place. <laughs> So dancing was was everything. Music was everything to me. What was the jiggle? The jiggle was like you just move your shoulder side to side and you rock. But I was adding more to it, dipping down to the ground, laying on the floor, doing it, getting up on the girl and doing it. It was pretty cool. <laughs> so uh, how did you become the biggest DJ in Los Angeles? By joining Uncle Jam's Army. So they already had a following. Tell me what they were, because I think a lot of folks who aren't from L.A. Right. might never have heard of them, even though they're sort of one of the building blocks of 
L.A. Hip Hop. Right. Um, they were the hu- a huge dance pr- promotion team who promoted their parties via flyers in your hand at your high school, doing high school lunch dances, giving flyers away there. All the record stores had the flyers. We had posters on all the poles. We had radio commercials on the radio. So everywhere you went, went to Venice Beach, we were there handing out flyers. You go down Crenshaw Boulevard at night, cruising, we had flyers over there. We had posters all down the street. And Roger Clayton, rest in peace, um, he was the mastermind behind it. So he had an idea, let's do like this area. So let's pick an area, Let's like Glendale. Let's do all the high school lunch dances in Glendale to promote this one Holiday Inn party in Glendale. Then the Holiday Inn party would promote the next party, which is a bigger a bigger place to double the people. And we'll go, you know, do high schools all around that area. So it's kind of spread. And all those parties promoted those hotel parties, then promoted ballroom parties, then promoted, like, a bigger veterans auditorium party, auditorium parties, and that promoted the sports arena party. And how many people were in the sports arena? 10,000. I mean, that's a and lot of people. And it was just people. DJs. That's crazy. That's yeah, wild. That was unbelievable. I wish we had phones back then to video and to record that because that was amazing. What was the show like? Just DJs. I mean, Roger had a, a format how to play music for those four hours from 10 to 2. He knew exactly how to, how to, to hype the party from the beginning, opening the doors to, to the end. We started the party out like from 10 to 11 when the doors first opened, playing all the brand spanking new music that the radio don't even have yet. So as soon as the song came out, we would always listen to it and say, this is hot. So as soon as the door is open, we'll play this hot beat, this hot record, and everybody's like, what is that? And they, they, they're walking into the, the, the sports arena, and they're hearing this record they never heard before, but it's just jamming. We knew it was going to be a hit. Then from 11 to 12, we start playing, you know, the known funk records, like whatever Rick James had out at the time, Barcades, Funkadelic, um, Cameo, One Way, Confunction, whoever had a hot record out, we would play that in that hour. Going to like some Prince stuff in the next hour after that. So Prince was really hot, and we were like a freaky promoter too. So but this was like beginning of the 1980s. So this yeah, was early like, 80s. So this was like Dirty Mind Prince. Yes, like the kind of raw electro, nasty, dirty. Yeah, it head, head was Prince's huge song. We never wasn't on the radio. We were the only ones playing it. And then the final hour will be the electro hour. We're playing like Planet Rock and Scorpio from Grandmaster Flash and Survival and Murder Rock and Kraftwerk and just just up-tempo until the end of the night. And people left there saying, I need more of this. And they'll come back to the next one. It seems like those early Prince records were a big influence on you along Oh, definitely. With... I mean, it was freaky. It was um, That's where I got my whole rap style from because Prince did a rap on one of his songs. He said, like, people call me rude. I wish we all were nude. I wish there were no black and white. I wish there were no rules. And I'm like, that's a chant. It's not a rap. And I want to, that style to be mine. So the beat I got was from Kraftwerk, but the the vocals and the lyrics came from Prince. Well, let's take a listen to uh, your iconic signature hit, Egypt, Egypt. My guest is Egyptian Lover. Scratch so sweet, there's not enough 
Something interesting that I read you saying about this record and a lot of your early work was that because you had come to music as a DJ, you were basically unconcerned with song structure, traditional song structure. Like I had it's, no idea what song structure was. <laughs> <laughs> this song was actually created by accident. I wrote another song called Beast Beats, and um, I decided not to make that record because I would have to sell my soul to the devil to make this record to be a star because that's what he told me it was going to happen. So on the way to the studio, I'm like, I can't make this record. So when I got to the studio, I, changed, I erased the beats and did different beats and filled the whole 808 up with different beats. The programming was still there, but the beats were different. And I changed the tempo, sped it up a little bit. And then um, the rap came from different records that I that I was writing that, that weren't complete. So I took like three different songs and made this record. So if you listen to this record, it's really messed up. I mean, none of the verses match. Like one of the verses, like pyramids are oh so shiny. Egypt, Egypt, and another verse is give me a freaky king connection. But don't they don't they don't match? Then another one is the vocoder. I'm the Egyptian lover, sexy. So it's three different total songs. So I thought to myself, well, I'm going to do it like a mega mix. And when it, finished, when, it, when it was finished, I said, you know, it sounds like a good DJ record. But I didn't know it was going to be a big record. I just knew it was good for me DJing at Uncle Jam's Army. <laughs> right. You made that record yourself. I mean, you put it out on your own record right. label. Put it on my own record label and distributed it. And, and it starts selling like crazy. And I'm like, okay, so maybe the DJs are buying it or the dancers are buying it. But what was good back then is... Even the DJs were buying two copies at one time to play one side and B side or mix the, mix the same side together. So instead of selling you know a hundred thousand records, you would sell two hundred thousand because people were buying double copies. But then the um, not just the DJs, but everybody started buying it, and it just started selling like crazy. And it was like, wow, okay, this is a good one. Did it feel like an LA thing then? I mean, did it yeah, feel like it definitely. belonged to where you were from? It was definitely an LA thing. I never thought that record would ever, you know, be big anywhere else. It was just the LA thing because LA was all about the freak with the up tempo beat, and that was it. It was a freak beat. That's what we named the label Freak Beat because it was just a freak beat. What does that mean? A beat you can freak to. A freak was a dance that everybody was doing at the time, and the dance lasted probably nine, ten years, and everybody was just freaking, which is just a guy and a girl grinding on each other to the well, on a rhythm. We'll have more with the Egyptian lover when we come back from a quick break. Still on the docket, the ultimate meet-cute, Egyptian lover tells me how the band Kraftwerk helped him meet his wife. Extremely romantic music, Kraftwerk. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. Support for this podcast and the following message come from WordPress.com. Creating your website on WordPress helps your customers find you, remember you, and connect with you. WordPress has hundreds of beautiful designs, the ability to add a custom domain name, and features to make your business more visible online. Get 15% off your new website today at WordPress.com slash bullseye. What does it take to start something from nothing? And what does it take to actually build it? I'm Guy Raz. Every week on How I Built This, I speak with founders behind some of the most inspiring companies in the world. Find it on NPR One or wherever you get your podcasts. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is West Coast hip-hop pioneer, the Egyptian lover. Let's hear some more music from my guest, Egyptian Lover, and his debut album, On the Nile, from 1984. This is I Cry Night After Night. I cry in the night. 
I know it makes no sense to cry But this ain't the way my life should be In the mornings, I go to the pond All my friends see me walking down the street And they all know something's bothering me Because my smile's so weak So I heard that this song was inspired by, and I think everyone's uh, out there listening <laughs> already knows the name I'm going to say, Dean Martin. Definitely. <laughs> a song that he made called um, Crying is it, um, Crying Time. So he yeah. was saying, like, in the middle of the day is when I lie, but the middle of the night is when I cry. And I was like, oh, that's so cool. Like, this dude who got all these women, you know, Matt Helm, <laughs> this, this player hanging out with Frank Sinatra in the Rat Pack. Is crying over a girl, I'm like that's cool. I want to, I want to do a song like that. And so I went to the studio and did the beat, kind of hard beat, and then I softened it up a little bit, and then put the music behind it, and did, and did "Wrote I Cry." I feel like a lot of musicians um, get into making music, especially pop music, uh, because they are hoping it will lead to romance. <laughs> I feel like every one of your records is basically entitled. I am making this song because I'm hoping it will lead to romance. <laughs> like You are leading with the fact that your goal right. here is to meet somebody. To meet a freak. Yeah. It's different. <laughs> meet, meeting a girl and meeting a freak is two different things. You can meet girls all day long, but to meet that freak. As I understand it, the freaks come out at night. Is that correct? Not in L.A. Okay. They, day, <laughs> night, don't matter. <laughs> the freaks are always out in L.A. <laughs> what records would you play when you were DJing those Uncle Jam's Army's parties at you know for 10,000 people at the LA Sports Arena? Man, we, so many records. <laughs> like um Let It Whip was a big a big song, Hit and Run. Um Give It to Me Baby, All Prince stuff like I said, Irresistible Bitch, Head uh, Lady Cab Driver, Let's Work, um, DMSR was big, um, The Time was big, Get It Up, The Stick, The Stick was huge, um, a, lot of, a lot of songs with um, O'Brien, um, and also uh, Lady T, and she had another group called Ozone, and they did a song called Jigolette. That song was huge, because it sounded like Square Biz, by Lady T, Tina Marie, but she produced this other song, and it was great. So if you can play Gigalette by Ozone, you'll see what I'm talking about. Well, let's listen to it. Why not? Yes. I'm always down for Lady T. So we talked about how much you love Prince. We talked about how much you love Kraftwerk. Right. I know that you were hearing Prince on the radio. Mm. Where did you hear Kraftwerk? Well, Kraftwerk is a long story. So 
in high school, I was really in love with this one girl. I mean, I wrote her a 16-page poem, and I just really liked her a lot. And um, when I graduated, when school started back, she actually knocked on my door. So I lived in the back house, and my parents lived in the front house. And she actually came to the back house and knocked on the door. And I'm still asleep because, you know, school is over for me. <laughs> I'm out of school. And I look through the, the the curtains, and it's like, oh, my goodness, it's her. Oh, my goodness. So I'm throwing some clothes real fast, and I open the door. She said, um, can you put this record on a cassette tape for me because I don't have a record player. But I listen to it on my father's record player, and I like it, and I want to hear it again. And I, she gave me the record, and I'm like, sure. And I looked at the record, and it was kind of weird. These four guys, the white guys, they looked like they're in a computer or something. Like, okay. <laughs> but she liked it. So, of course, I'm going to like it because she liked it. So I'm going to give it a chance. So I put it on, put the tape in, and I started listening to it while I was recording. I'm like, oh, it's, it's futuristic. It sounds pretty cool. And by the time I got to, like, <laughs> the last song on Side B, I'm like, I love this music. I don't care, you know, what she think about it. I absolutely really love this stuff. It's futuristic. So when she came back to pick up the um, tape, she said I could have the record. That all she wanted was a tape because she don't have a record player. I'm like, really? Thank you so much. Thank you so much. So I had the record. I was just listening to it all the time. And I always wanted to make a rap to that numbers beat, but I didn't, I didn't do it yet. And that summer... We were sending the tapes in the, in the store, like I said, and I, saw, I heard Planet Rock, like, oh, they beat me to it. That, that's exactly what I wanted to do, make a rap to that numbers beat. And eventually it happened. <laughs> I did it one day. And so our 10-year reunion came up at, at our high school, and um, I went to the reunion. I saw her. I said, you know, um, since you gave me that, that Crawford record, I started making my kind of music like that. She said, oh, really? I said, yeah, because thanks to you, I'm doing you know, what I'm, I love to do. And so we started dating, and I ended up marrying her. <laughs> That's fantastic. Congratulations. Thank you. Well, thank you so much for taking all this time to be on Bullseye. It was so great oh, to get sure. to talk to you. The Egyptian lover, everyone. Like we said before, he's still performing and recording today. He's got a huge world tour coming up. Dates in Athens and Berlin and Johannesburg and Long Beach. Find out more about them on the Bullseye page at MaximumFun.org. Every week on Bullseye, we like to leave you with a culture tip from me. We call it the outshot. So I read an interview with Mackenzie Crook, who created the TV show Detectorists. It's about a pair of guys with metal detectors wandering through the English countryside. And Crook said that the plan originally for the show was to kind of mock the main characters. You know, it's easy to see how that would be the plan. I mean, there's something inherently pathetic about metal detecting. It's kind of a hobby for lonely guys who like electronic equipment and also, I guess, finding buttons. But that didn't turn out to be the show that Crook made. And honestly, I'm glad he changed his plans. It's a hobby, that's all. Men have hobbies and women don't understand them. It's the way it's always been. I mean, how many female train spotters are there? How many women commit to an afternoon reorganising their vinyl in alphabetical order? Oh, you don't want to spend an evening with a beautiful woman just comparing comic book collections, do you? Well, what you want is your partner to, to shake her head, roll her eyes and look at you and say, 
You and your hobbies. I'll never understand, men. Crook, if you don't know who he is, made his name as Gareth on the original version of The Office, the British equivalent of Dwight. Gareth wasn't quite the goofy sitcom frothy delight that Dwight was, but he was a little sweeter, a little sadder, and also maybe a little more unpleasant, if that makes any sense. Crook is a pretty amazing-looking guy. He has this long, gaunt face, thin facial hair, and big, beautiful, arresting eyes. Because of that, he gets a lot of weird-looking guy work. I mean, he was a wildling on Game of Thrones. I think he was some kind of underwater skeleton man in one of the Pirates of the Caribbean movies. My memories of that are hazy. He's basically the kind of guy who will always work as an actor, both because he is really good at it and because he just has an unforgettable face. But he isn't necessarily the guy you'd pick out of a lineup to be your leading man. And his co-star is an actor named Toby Jones, who I'm sure you've seen in something. He played Truman Capote in that Truman Capote biopic that wasn't called Capote. Uh, He's been in every kind of play on stage. He's been in a thousand blockbuster movies. I mean, like every blockbuster movie. And he also is very distinctive looking. He's much shorter than Crook. He's sort of round-headed. He has a small nose, small eyes centered in his face, almost the opposite of Crook's. They're a natural double act. The idea of what is considered beautiful changes through time. Like, well, back in the Tudor period, you might be considered really attractive. You know, scrawny, a beard and a hair. Stick a ruff around your neck, you could have been one of Lizzie the first favourites. Right, and how far back in time would you have to go before you were considered attractive? Oh, no, no, no. I, I, my time is right around the corner. Within the next couple of years, I reckon. But if you're expecting hijinks from these two mismatched dudes, you've got detectorists read wrong. It's actually a quiet show about two quiet guys and about, you know, the quiet relationships of normal human beings. Crook's character is married with a baby, and his relationship with his wife feels both genuinely loving and also a bit tenuous, like they're both trying to figure out all along if they're sitting right in their partnership. Hello. All right? Yeah, you? Yeah. You're late. Yeah, I went to the pub. Oh, which one? The brewers. The two brewers? Yeah. The pub on the corner of our road? Yeah. Oh, nice. Sorry, I should have phoned. And while Jones's character has a bit more bluster, it's pretty transparent bluster. He's a lonely man. I mean, he lost his wife to a flashier guy, and he tends to his triumph roadster like having a triumph roadster was really much more impressive than it actually is. So it's these two guys and a few more local weirdos in a detectorist's club. They will correct you very quickly if you say a detector's club. And they meet up at the community center 
and then they're down at the pub drinking after their meeting, and then they head out on weekends to pursue this solitary, quiet hobby. Actually, the scenes in the fields where they do their detecting are some of the most beautiful-looking scenes I've ever seen in a TV comedy. The colors of the light play across their faces as they talk about quiz shows or Roman ruins or just, you know, not much of anything. It's kind of beautiful to see this kind of friendship on TV. Lonelyish folks who are looking for something but have also found something. And they know that what they have is odd, but, you know, it's their thing. <laughs> Did you see the look on his face? I thought he was going to cry. You shouldn't have taken his detector. I couldn't help it. Don't mess with Lance's metal detectors. He's got more than one. Legend has it he has a false bookcase that goes back to a really secret cabinet full of them. Yeah? That's what they say. That's so weird. Why do you hang out with them? They're not weird. Yeah, they are. They're freaks. You're relatively normal compared to them. I like them. They're my friends. There's an odd promise that drives the heroes of Detectorists. They want to find gold. But they don't really find gold. They find bottle caps and they find boats. Boats being an acronym, by the way, for bit off an old tractor. But the show feels like an argument for the value of hope in our lives. And not even foolish, ignorant hope. Not that certainty that it's all going to work out. More like a, a, a quieter hope. Have you ever thought about what kind of dance you'd do if you found gold? Oh, no. It's bad luck to practice beforehand. It has to be spontaneous. Yeah. Yeah, I've no idea what will come out on the day. Well, I imagine it'll be uh, exuberant. Not too exuberant, though. Remember what happened to Derek Hoof? Oh, yeah. Dislocated a hip. It wasn't even gold in the end, was it? Milk bottle top. Embarrassing. I mean, here's the thing. They're looking for gold. But they're also looking for history. And as the series goes on, we see the history once in a while. The Saxon hordes who trampled across the fields, the people who lived there before. And as we watch, the buttons and the pull tabs start to accrete meaning. They're not junk anymore. They're connections. If you let it sink in, Detectorists becomes a lot more than just a, a quirky sitcom. It's not about the jokes. It's about connections between plain people, love and friendship that you can actually recognize from life. I mean, take a glance at these two guys. You wouldn't think they're TV stars. But it turns out that their story is kind of beautiful. Call it a day. Go on then. Switching off detectors in five, four, three, two. Hang on. Where you got? Jumping around between 50 and 80. Probably just a shotty. Look at that. It's a whistle. That is lovely. Good job, mate. Was that military? That's hawking whistle. A falconer would have used that, call his bird back. Does it work? It's full of dirt. Hang on.
That's my outshot. Pub? Go on then. Will you search through the lonely earth for me? Climb through the briar and bramble. I'll be your treasure. That's all for this week's Bullseye. Bullseye is recorded at MaximumFun.org World Headquarters, overlooking MacArthur Park in beautiful Los Angeles, California. Our apologies if you heard on this program the sound of what sounds like a monster farting. We think someone's doing some work in a unit upstairs. This show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. The producer, Kevin Ferguson, he had help from Christian Duenas and Casey O'Brien. Our production fellow at MaximumFun.org is Jesus Ambrosio. Our senior producer is Laura Swisher. All our interstitial music is provided by Dan Wally. Our theme was recorded by the Go Team and provided to us by Memphis Industries Records, their label, along with the band itself. If you'd like to hear any of our past shows, all of them are free on our website, MaximumFun.org, on our YouTube page. Just search for Bullseye with Jesse Thorne, and we also share them on Facebook. I guess that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. Is waiting for you. Is waiting for you.